Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. That's from Romans 14, where you can turn. That's pretty much where we're going to pick up this morning. I hope that last week I gave you a good feeling, a good overview for what Paul was dealing with here between the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome and the differences between them and the differences in how they ate and how they observed days and the long-standing enmity that was between them that was broken down in Christ, which is why Paul could say things like, In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, slave or free man. There's no difference. God is not a respecter of persons, and therefore there are no differences between people if you are in Christ. And so that is the overarching Pauline theology. Thematically, what we're going to look at this morning is exactly what I just read to you, because it really is the theme of the whole of this chapter. What Paul is getting at is whether you live, how you live, what you do, how you behave, how you treat other people, how you look on your brethren, how you treat your brethren, all of that is supposed to be characterized by or is supposed to be acted on according to your realization that you belong to the Lord. And if you recognize that you belong to the Lord, that is going to change the way that you behave. You're not going to be like the world, and one of the primary ways that you're not going to be like the world is in how you treat other people. Paul is also going to continue talking about observing days and uh, the different eating laws, the different aspects of eating that the different groups, Jew and Gentile, would have. And essentially what he's saying is those differences don't matter as much as the reality that you share a common spirit. The fact that you've both been saved, the fact that you both have your names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. That's what should unite you. That supersedes everything else about you, like whether you keep a day or not, whether you eat kosher or whether you don't the primary factor is none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself and if we live we we christians we blood-bought ones we who were chosen before the foundation of the world while we're living we live for the lord that's what makes us unique and distinct but even ultimately if we die We die for the Lord because we still belong to the Lord. Whether we live, whether we die, 
we still belong to the Lord. Now, we will dig into that verse a little bit more when we get to it. We're going to start reading at chapter 14, verse 1, so that we get the context again. And I hope that the first seven verses are going to make more sense to you now that you understand everything that we taught last week. Now, except the one who is weak in faith, I told you that doesn't mean just believe anything he says. Tom came up to me last week after I got done, and he said there should be an appropriate emphasis on the fact, as Paul is talking about weaker brethren, that Paul is talking about traditions among weaker brethren and not about the freedom to make up your own doctrine. Paul has laid out the sound doctrine. He has laid out the reality of what you are to believe and what you are to understand about Christ. Paul is not saying, therefore, if somebody comes into your assembly and they believe that when you die, your soul goes to a garage in Buffalo, that you're supposed to go, well, that's your belief. You know, it's it's as good as anybody else's. No, you're supposed to hold to the sound doctrine regardless. What Paul is talking about here are the traditions that people carried religiously that have nothing to do with the doctrine of Christ. That has already been established. So when he says, accept a one who is weak in faith, he's saying, accept them into your assembly. If you're gathering together and somebody comes through the door who doesn't have the level of understanding, knowledge, and freedom that you have, Paul is going to go on to say, you who have that freedom ought to be willing to curb your freedom for the sake of the conscience of the weaker one. Because that is the way that the church is meant to behave itself because it belongs to the Lord. Somebody has to make some compromise when you're looking at two people who have a difference over traditions. When one is willing to eat any food and the other is not. When one worships every day the same and another who sees high days still and respects certain days There's got to be some way to get them together for the sake of the unity within the body. And the weak one can't raise himself up to the freedom. He's weak in the faith. So the one who has the freedom, who has the strength of the faith, who has the knowledge of Christ and what he can do, Paul says it's incumbent on him to reach down to the weaker brother. Now, what we're also going to look at today is that Paul is going to say, now, if you have freedom, go ahead and have it, but have it to yourself. Have it privately. When you're at home, what you eat and how you eat, that's up to you. Or if you have freedom to not worship on certain days, that's up to you. Have your freedom, but don't use that freedom you have as an opportunity to hurt your brother. And he's going to describe for us this morning what that sort of damage would look like. So accept a weaker brother into your assembly. Accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgments on his opinions. The only reason that Paul could say that would be that obviously that's what was going on. That people were accepting people who were weaker in faith than them, accepting them into their congregation, and then belittling them, then making fun of them. I told you last week that the word opinions here in the NASB is dialogismos, 
which is the word from which we get dialogue. It just means his speech, the things he says. Of course he's going to say things that differ from the things that you say or the opinions that you have because your strength in the faith is different than his weakness in the faith and therefore according to his weakness he's going to speak. Those are his opinions. Those are his traditions. So don't accept him into the congregation just so that you can make fun of him. Instead, bring him into the congregation, step down to him, come alongside him, and help him in the faith to graduate to the same level of freedom that you have. Does that make sense? Yes. Verse 2. One man has faith that he can eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats, that means eats anything, Regard with contempt him who does not eat everything. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. And that always seems to be the way it goes. In so much of modern Christianity, dare I say online Christianity, you see examples of this very thing. The person who believes that they are stronger in the faith will oftentimes look down on the weaker ones in the faith, but look down on them in contempt. Whereas the ones who are weaker in the faith, who are bound up by their traditions, are more likely to look at the ones who have freedom and judge them for their freedom. So Paul's language here is very specific and accurate to this very day. That is the tendency of human beings, if they are strong in the faith, to have condemnation for those who aren't as strong as them. And so they talk down to them or they make fun of them for not having the freedom they have. And the opposite side is the person who has freedom, who doesn't keep all the traditions that maybe somebody else might keep, the person who is keeping those traditions ends up judging the person who has the freedom. So Paul's language, as specific as it is, is incredibly accurate. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. And that's the key to it all. As I began this morning and said, it's all about we belong to the Lord. Paul's reasoning for not judging or condemning each other is that God has accepted him. And if God has accepted him, whether he has traditions or whether he doesn't, if it is God who has accepted him, what does your opinion matter? What does it count because you condemn or judge somebody else? You don't have the power that God has to do any actual condemnation, actual judgment, or actual uplifting. And if they belong to God, if they have been blood-bought through Christ's finished sacrifice, and they belong to him, then you're on the wrong side when you start judging and condemning someone who God has already bought. Who are you to judge, verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Because to his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will because the Lord is able to make him stand. He has identified who the master is. If we are servants of our master, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we belong to him and we don't belong to you. (laughs) 
We don't belong to you where you can judge our behavior, where you can judge our traditions. As long as we are serving the Lord in the things that we do, you have no platform from which to start judging or condemning us because the only one who can judge or condemn us is the Lord and he makes you stand. So if you're busy putting down or judging somebody else who the Lord is lifting up, guess who's going to win? And you're going to look the fool because you were trying to put down somebody that Christ was lifting up. Verse 5 then, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. We're going to dig into that deeper this morning. Every man convinced in his own mind. We're going to see Paul writing later that if you are convinced that something is unclean for you, sinful for you, but then you do it anyway, you eat it anyway, even though you're convinced in your conscience that you shouldn't, if you do it anyway, then it becomes unclean and sinful for you. Because you're going against your own Christian conscience. So the overarching concept is, let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. If you're fully convinced that you ought to be keeping Sabbath, then I say keep Sabbath. If that's the way you worship God, do that. If you're fully convinced that you ought to observe feast days, do that. I don't do that. But I'm never going to tell you not to because that might be what you are fully convinced of in your own conscience. And if what you are fully convinced of is the way that you are serving God and he is accepting you, I don't have the ability to say that what you're doing is incorrect. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it to the Lord. That's what I was just saying. If your way of Worshiping God is to keep days, keep feast days, keep the Sabbaths, keep the high days. Well, you're doing that because you're serving the Lord. And he who eats, who can eat anything, he does that because of his freedom in the Lord. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. In other words, because he's convinced in his mind that this is how he's going to worship God, that's the reason that he isn't eating a particular way but he gives thanks to God the same way that you give thanks to God he's been bought by God the same way that you've been bought by God he's just acting differently than you and we all want people to act like us I heard a line years ago that I always enjoyed that says uh, when two people get married the Bible says the two become one and they spend the next seven years arguing about which one Because we all want people to be like us. We figure we're the standard. We assume that because we're doing it right, people should do it like us. And that takes us to verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself. That word for gar at the very beginning there means that Paul, having laid out the basic argument is now giving you the underpinning of the argument, is giving you the logic behind the argument. Because not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, 
how we live, what we do, how we conduct ourselves. We live for the Lord. This is the word kurios. You heard me mention this word many times, and it, it just means the master, the one who's in charge, the one who has all the authority, all of the power in heaven and earth, the kurios. The only reason I mention that is that Paul is going to use a slightly different word in just a moment, although it's still going to be translated as Lord. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. For the Lord. We die because the Lord has determined time for us to die. And we are dying to satisfy his finished work of redeeming a people. And he said while he was on the planet, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. He's bringing people to heaven so that they can see his glory. So they can see his splendor. So even our death is part of what the Lord has determined for us. When we die, how we die, that's all up to him. So whether we live, how we live, how we behave, how we walk, that's to be for the Lord. When we die, how we die, the time we die, that is also for the Lord, the kurios, the one who's in charge of everything. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's kurios again. Verse 9, for to this end... Christ died and lived again. This is fascinating. Follow Paul's logic here. To this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. That word Lord right there, kurieuo in the Greek. I'm, I'm not great with Greek diphthongs. There's a whole lot of vowels at the end of that word, I-E-U-O, kurieuo. The whole point is, that's a verb. Up until now, every time you've seen the word Lord, it's been a noun. But then at this moment, Paul used a different form of the word in the Greek that you don't see in the English language because what he's saying is Christ died and lived again so that he could exercise absolute mastery over the dead and the living. In other words, he's been dead. And when he was dead, he went to hell, he preached to the captives, he took captivity captive, and then he rose again. He didn't stay in the belly of the earth. He went to the belly of the earth and accomplished what he went there to do because he is exercising absolute authority over death. But he's also alive and ever alive. And because he is ever living, then he is exercising absolute authority over everything living. Which is why he could say things like, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me because he has absolute authority. Whether you're alive, whether you're dead, he is still in control of it. He still has absolute lordship, dominance, authority over everything, living or dead. Now, knowing that he is the one who has absolute authority over everything living and everything dead, if he has all that authority, and if he is Lord, if he is curious over all of that, how much authority does that leave over for you? None. So then if you decide to start judging, if you decide to start putting other people down because of their traditions then really, from what standpoint are you judging them? You have no basis for your judgment. You have no authority. 
He has all the authority. He's the one that judges the quick and the dead, living and the dead. He's the one who has absolute mastery over the living and the dead. So Paul is saying, my whole argument so far about not arguing with other people, not condemning other people, not judging other people because of their traditions and the way that they serve the Lord, all of that that I've said to you is based in the reality that it's Christ himself that they belong to, and it's Christ himself who is judge of them, not you. Why would you judge somebody else's servant? They're going to stand or fall according to their own master. He's able to lift them up. He is the master of living and dead. Whether we live, we live to the Lord. Whether we die, we die to the Lord. And if he's the one who has all that authority, then Paul can still ask that question that he's so good at asking, who are you? Who are you to judge another? Who are you? Where do you think you get that authority? Where do you think you get that kind of power? Don't forget, you're just another sinner saved by grace. So God will do the judging part when it comes to how people approach him and worship him. Make sense? Yes. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again so that he might be Lord over the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? There it is. There's that, who are you question again. Having established who Jesus is, he has to go back to, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Now, the reason that he used both those words, judgment and contempt, is that he has already laid out for us that it is the one who has freedom who's going to look with contempt on the one who doesn't have freedom. And the one who doesn't have freedom is going to judge the one who does have freedom. And so he's now replying to both groups by saying, why do you judge your brother or why do you condemn your brother? Why do you judge your brother or you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, that is the word bema, this does not equate with the idea of the great white throne judgment, where Christ is going to separate sheep and goats or living and dead, where there's going to be condemnation and sending to outer darkness. What Paul is talking about here, consistent with his whole theology, everything he writes, is that we're going to have to stand before Christ and give some kind of account. Verse number 11 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us gives account of himself to God. That word account is just the word logos. It means we're going to have to say a word about it. It's kind of like God saying, hey, you, I need a word with you. He's going to talk to you about how you lived out your Christianity, how you behaved yourself according to your knowledge that Christ is the judge, that Christ is the one who lifts them up, that they belong to Christ and not to you. He's going to talk to you about that, and there's going to be a series of rewards and appropriate punishments, but he's not talking about you losing your salvation, considering that he is talking to blood-bought before the foundation of the world Christians. What he's saying is that even we Christians 
are going to have to give account at some point to Christ of how we dealt with our Christianity in this lifetime. Here, I'll show you a place where it actually says that. Turn to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. Keep your finger right there. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5.10. Right after Romans, you'll find the Corinthian letters. Second Corinthians 5, starting, let's start at verse 9. Therefore also, this is going to sound very similar, very standard Pauline theology, therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, that means whether alive or dead, whether in the body or out of the body, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. Sounds like what we just read. Again, standard Pauline theology. Whether we're in the body, whether we're out of the body, whether we're home or absent, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, our ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. For we must all appear before, same word, bema, the judgment seat of Christ. All that word bema means is it's like a platform. It's like a step, actually. It just means the raised up place where a judge would sit. And we're all going to go to the Bema of Christ. As you read in the Gospels and you read about uh, Pilate, you read that Pontius Pilate sat at the Bema because he was sitting as judge. So there's nothing special about the word Bema until you say at the Bema of Christ. It's the judgment seat of Christ judging those who belong to him. So he's not judging them for the purpose of condemnation, He's judging them for the purpose of rewards. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So again, this is standard Pauline thinking that when our life is over, we are going to stand before Christ and we're going to give an account. We're going to have to talk about who we are, and how we acted. Now, hopefully, that's going to be a good conversation. Hopefully, if you have walked out your Christianity accordingly and appropriately, you're able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But he's not going to lose you, but he is going to correct you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 3 for just a moment. We'll we'll dig into this a little bit further. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Oh, it's difficult to know where to start. We're going to start at verse 9 again. You're going to get the same idea, same Pauline theology. For we, collectively, we are God's fellow workers. We are all slaves who belong to the master. We are all servants of Christ. We are all fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Remember when I began today, I said, as you accept the weaker brother into your congregation, into your assembly, you're not accepting him for the purpose of knowing what he thinks theologically, doctrinally. Paul has already laid out the proper sound doctrine of Christianity. In this case, he's calling it the foundation. 
I've already laid out the basic stuff on which you are to build. You don't change that. You don't change the foundation. If you're, let's say, building a garage, they come first and they pour the foundation. Nothing else gets built till the foundation is built. Then no matter how many beams and roof and shingles and doors and whatever else you put on it, you haven't changed the foundation. That's what Paul is getting at. He is already, as a wise master builder, he has already laid the foundation. He has already defined the sound doctrine. You don't get to change that. You don't get to adjust that. By the way, once that foundation is laid, usually you can tear it out, whatever you built on it, and build another thing. Same foundation. So Paul is using very appropriate words and saying, I've laid the foundation And another is building on it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So he said, all of us who are fellow workers, all of us who are part of the body of Christ together, we are all God's field and we are all God's building. Therefore, each of us is building on. We are constructing our lives on the foundation that Paul has already laid. And so he says, now be careful what kind of building you're building. Be careful what you're constructing on the foundation. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's already been laid foundationally. Which is why Paul can say things like to the Galatians when he said, if any man says anything other than what you have received, let him be anathema. Why could he say something like that? It's because the foundation doesn't change. The foundation has already been laid, and no man can lay any other foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon that foundation with gold and silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If you're building on the foundation, things like gold and silver and precious stone, is fire going to hurt it? No. No. In fact, fire is the method of purifying it. If on that foundation you lay wood, hay, straw, and fire comes? Is that going to damage what you've built? Yeah, absolutely. So fire is going to determine, according to Paul here, the judgment of God, I think is what he's referring to here as the fire, or the judgment of Christ at the Bama seat. It's going to test what you've built on that foundation. The foundation of Christ, the foundation of the sound doctrine, the foundation of the word of God, that exists. Now, what you do in your life, how you walk out your life, how you treat other people, that is how you build on that foundation. If you're building good things on that foundation, then when they're tried, they're going to remain. But if you're building weak things, if you're building hay and stubble and straw, then when the fire comes, when the judgment of Christ comes, those things are going to be burned up. Each man's work. So now you know that the gold, the silver, the precious stones, the wood, the hay, the straw refer to your work. What you've done in this life, how you've behaved in this life, how you've treated other people in this life. 
Your work will become evident, for the day will show it. Judgment day. For the light of Christ, for the light of the day is going to demonstrate what kind of work you had that you built on that foundation. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Paul is writing to Christians here. In writing to Christians, did he just say that every man's work is going to be tried? Yes. Sure. This is judgment language, trial language for Christians to determine whether the work they have built on this foundation is good work. Or is it just wimpy work? Is it just stuff that's going to be burned away? So then as you're reading this language, the tendency is to think, well, wait, I I didn't think Christians got judged. Paul will explain that. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built upon the foundation, if any of that work remains, he receives a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So he's talking about Christians. He's talking about saved people here, and he's talking about the fact that we are going to have to give an account. We are going to be judged. Our work, our behavior on this planet, how we have responded to the foundation, how we have built on that foundation is one day going to be assessed by Christ himself and the fire of his judgment is either going to burn up our works or they're going to remain. And if your works remain, you get rewards. I didn't say it. Paul said it. And he said, but if your works are burned up, you're going to suffer loss. Now, I don't know if that just means that you're going to lose the rewards you might have otherwise gotten. There's an actual rewards and loss statement in these verses. If any man's work, which he's built upon it, remains, he receives a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved because we're dealing with Christians here. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Okay, back to Romans now. Now that we understand the basic Pauline theology, it makes more sense when he says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. We shall all stand before the Bema of God, the place where we're all going to be assessed. And we're going to have to give an answer for ourselves. Paul's reasoning for thinking that is he says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. That, by the way, is from Isaiah 45, 23. Originally, it was in the context of God talking to Israel about their chasing other gods and his declaration that he is the only God and that ultimately every knee is going to bow to him. Every tongue is going to confess to him. But you want to see something really interesting? You know that we have quoted Philippians 2 many, many times here. Let's go look at it. What the heck? We're here. Philippians 2. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, what's he talking about? He's talking about fellowship within the body. Compassion for one another within the body. 
if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God and you're in fellowship with each other, if that exists, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. How many letters to how many churches now has Paul written where he says the same thing? It matters how you treat each other. It matters how you behave in this life. It matters how you look after each other. With humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, something that he had to go and steal or something they had to get. It was intrinsically his equality with God. And yet, Despite that state, he emptied himself, he poured himself out, and he took on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of a man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, follow this, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those which are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason I went and mentioned that and looked at it is because originally in Isaiah it was about God. It was about Yahweh. There was no question who God was speaking about when he said every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that I am God, I am Lord, and all those other false gods, all those other idols, they don't count. I'm the only real God. Paul picks it up in the book of Romans and then in Philippians and starts saying Christ is that one, which means he saw Christ as God. He was able to look at Christ and say he's the one that every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord, that he is master over everybody. He picks it up here in Romans to say, because it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. That's why he says, so then each of us is going to have to give an account of himself to God. Do you understand that Paul's theology is we Christians, we blood-bought ones are going to stand before God and have to give a word about ourselves. (laughs) And the word is going to have to do with how'd you live? What'd you do with the foundation that was given to you? By the way, was the foundation of the word given to everybody? No. No. You can think of people right now off the top of your head without even trying. You can think of people who didn't have the word given to them. They've never read the Bible. They don't care to read the Bible. Or on those occasions when somebody does tell them what's in the Bible, they don't care. There's nothing in their heart or mind that is enlightened to the reality of the word. Therefore... If you care about the foundational stuff, if you care about the gospel, if you care about the word of God, if you care about the doctrine, if you care about the foundation, that's a gift to you. Therefore, build on it accordingly. 
You're not building on it to your glory. I think, by the way, that's what the wood, hay, and stubble is about. I think if you're trying to build on it so that you can look better, to say that people will stand on the foundation in order to glorify themselves. They think that the foundation is a stepping stone to self-glorification. It's not. It's about Christ. It's all about Christ, and it's all about worship and glory to Christ. I think that's how you build (laughs) gold and silver and precious stones. But my point for the moment is you've been given an astounding gift. And never forget that it is a gift. You've been given the ability to understand the word of God. You are being drawn by God himself through his word, through the teaching of his gospel. You are being drawn to the God who created everything. Do you realize how phenomenally fortunate that makes you? Well, then be careful how you build on it. Be careful what you do with it. Because what you do with it is one day going to be judged by the very one who has the authority of life and death. You got it? Am I boring you? No. Okay. Okay. Therefore, says verse 13, therefore, it's as if Paul, everything he has said up until this moment is leading to the therefore, now that you know all this stuff, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this. Now, I've been stressing this over and over, that we who have freedom, we who are free in Christ, we should not place a stumbling block in the way of the weaker brother. He's going to start there, and he's going to work his way through the notion that you as the free one don't have the right to condemn, trip up, make fun of the opinion of the weaker brother. Therefore, let us not judge one another, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now he's going to describe what that is. I'll give you a quick example of it, and then you can hear Paul say it. What he's going to say is, you who have freedom, don't use your freedom in such a way that it causes the weaker brother to start thinking, well, if he does it, it must be okay. And then he's going to go against his own conscience, and I already told you, if you're convinced in your own mind that something is a sin and then you do it anyway, that's sin for you. And so if you, utilizing your freedom, encourage somebody with a weaker conscience to follow after your freedom, but they're working against their own conscience, that's what it is to put a stumbling block in front of them. And ultimately, Paul says, you're going to destroy them. You're going to wreck them by what you're doing. Why are you hurting people like that? I know Verse 14, I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean by itself. Now, he's talking about the cleanliness laws. You might remember that even Jesus, when he was walking with his disciples, they were hungry and they picked some corn and they were eating it. And the Pharisees got up in their face. That's exactly what the Bible says, by the way, is they got up in their face and said, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Okay, that had to do with a cleanliness rule. 
The Pharisees wouldn't eat unless they did all the ceremonial washings that made them ceremonially clean, ready to eat. And when the disciples were with Jesus, they weren't following those cleanliness rules, and that just irritated the Pharisees to no end. So Paul is saying, in Christ, then I am convinced that in the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in and of itself. So whatever you want to eat, say shellfish, which according to the law you can't eat, but these days, if you can get a lobster, you know, go for it. These days, Paul says, there's nothing unclean in and of itself. So the thing is not unclean. You understand that? The thing is not unclean. Let's say there's a a piece of bacon sitting there, which according to the Old Testament law, you can't eat pig. So there's some bacon sitting there, and you know how tempting bacon can be. Can I get a witness? Okay. So there's a piece of bacon. That bacon, according to Paul, is not clean or unclean. It doesn't have the ability, being an inanimate object, it doesn't have the ability to be righteous or to be sinful. It's just a thing. And I am determined, says Paul, that it's not clean or unclean. But to him who thinks it's unclean, to him it becomes unclean. So that same piece of bacon, which I can eat happily and regularly do, and I'm not bragging, I can eat bacon all day and that's not a problem. But if my Jewish friends come over, and they are still trying to stay with the eating rules of the Old Testament, if they are still following the kosher rules, I'm not going to cook up some bacon and sit down and eat it in front of them. Instead, I'm going to make sure that whatever would offend them doesn't exist in our environment so that I'm not offending them because if they are convinced that the bacon is unclean and then they eat it because they see the freedom with which I'm eating it, it becomes sin for them and it's my fault. You get it? Yes. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him... It is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. What did we just read in Philippians 2? If you love people, you're going to look out for them. You're going to treat them better. Account them as better than yourself. You're going to look after their things and not just the things that benefit you. Therefore, Paul says... If somebody eats something that they are convinced is unclean and they're eating it because of you, you are hurting your brother because you are making them offend their own conscience. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. And Jesus himself said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your By your love for one another. That's how important this walking in love thing is. And you're not walking in love if you're judging the weaker brother and causing him to stumble. (laughs) 
instead you should be curbing your own behavior you should be careful how you treat the weaker brother because how you treat him is the determination of whether or not you are walking after the command of Christ that said you're supposed to love one another. You're not walking in love if you're hurting them. Yes, sir, Leon. Just clarification for me. Yep. When you said you have a Jewish friends come over and they're following, we're in the context of Christian brothers, though. Are you saying those Jewish friends are Christians? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I have a friend out in California, converted Jewish friend. Uh, I have a couple of folks in Florida who call me regularly, and they've been here at GCA who are converted Jews. Their traditions and the way that they worship God is different than ours in that they do see some of the high days and they do see some of the Sabbath rules as still being uh, impending on their conscience. And so they still do it. So am I supposed to criticize them for that? Or am I supposed to, since I have the freedom not to do those things, am I supposed to recognize that they, by their tradition, are worshiping God and encourage their worship of God? They're walking in Christ. So yes, we're talking about Jewish Christians versus Gentile Christians and the traditions of each. Make more sense? Okay. We're at verse 15, for if because of your food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Okay, now he's equating hurting your brother and destroying your brother. You're destroying his faith, you're destroying his conscience. You're causing him to do things that are contrary to his own conscience. Paul right here gives you a direct command. There's no question about it. There's no vagueness about it. Do not destroy with your food someone else for whom Christ died. Don't do it. If you have freedom, how often have you heard me say this through the years? And I will spare you the backstory because you probably all know the backstory by now. But genuine, true Christian freedom. Since we're the ones who say, well, we're grown up. We know the theology. We have the freedom. We are free in Christ. We are free indeed. If we're truly, genuinely free, then we also have the freedom to say no. If you don't have the ability to say no, you're kidding yourself if you think you're free. Because you're bound To the things that you're determined to do. Genuine freedom is the ability to say no to things. Paul says, everything is lawful to me. He says, but I'm not going to be captured by, I'm not going to be ruled by anything. Nothing's lawless where I'm free in Christ. I can allow or disallow whatever my traditions determine. But I will not be bound to anything that's what real freedom is if I say you're free Micah you're free to do whatever you want and then I right behind it say now here's your list of things to do is that free no even though I've told him he's free if I then tell him what to do he's not free he still has to do the things I say 
True, genuine freedom is the ability to say no. So there are things in your life that are damaging to you. There are things in your life that are hurtful for you. When Paul said everything is lawful to me, he also said, but not everything is expedient. Not everything is intelligent. Not everything is a good choice. So I'm not going to be bound to anything. I'm always going to retain the ability to say no. Genuine freedom is the ability to say no to your own wants and desires if those wants and desires would hurt someone else. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. One last time, turn to 1 Corinthians again. One book forward. Turn to 1 Corinthians 8. I told you last week that among the Gentiles... One of the eating concerns that they had was that they might be eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And if their conscience was that they could not eat something that had been sacrificed to an idol, then they would appear to be weaker brethren because they couldn't eat something because it was sacrificed to an idol. This happened a lot in Corinth where there were many different idols, many different temples, And meat that was sold in the marketplace, meat that was sold in the shambles, oftentimes was sacrificed to an idol and then put on the market. And so this is Paul's instruction concerning the freedom that we have in Christ versus the lack of freedom that some people have and how we should respond to it. Verse 1 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. In other words, what he's saying is an idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood, or it's a piece of metal, and it supposedly represents a God who doesn't exist. Therefore, it is nothing. So concerning eating things that are sacrificed to idols, we know first off that there are no idols in this world that are actually anything. And we know that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and lords, many of these idols of so-called gods, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we Exists through him. However, not all men have this knowledge. For some, being accustomed to an idol up until now. That was the thing with converted Gentiles, especially there in Corinth. Many of them would have a history, a background with idols. They would have attended idol worship. They would have gone to idol temples. They would have perhaps given money to idols. They had a background, an association with idols. And now 
when they hear that meat is sacrificed to an idol, they're put off by it. They can't eat that simply because it was sacrificed to an idol and because they were so deeply involved with idols before, their conscience is now pricked by that. So Paul says, however, not all men have this knowledge, this freedom. But some, being accustomed to an idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So if they eat food that is sacrificed to an idol, that's an offense to their conscience. But food will not condemn us to God. Remember Paul said earlier, I'm convinced that everything's clean. There's nothing unclean when it comes to food. Whatever you eat, you eat. Food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor are we better if we do eat. In other words, food, as we looked at last week, Jesus said, it's not what you put in your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But what you put in your mouth, he said, goes through your belly and is eliminated. Not all men have this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, becomes defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow becomes a stumbling block to the weak. That's exactly what Paul said to the Romans. Don't let your freedom become a stumbling block to your weaker brethren. For if someone sees you who have knowledge... If they see you dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The word in the book of Romans was hurt and destroyed. The brother for whose sake Christ died. So we are talking about someone who is in Christ. They have a weaker conscience. Paul then says, if they see you, if they are determined that they cannot eat food that is sacrificed to an idol, and then they see you sitting in an idol's temple eating because you know an idol is nothing and you're just happy to get a steak. If they see you sitting there eating, they're going to want to be like you, they're going to go offend their own conscience, and they're going to go eat the very thing that they have already decided was sin for them. And that's going to be your fault, not theirs. For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, if they see you dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat those things that are sacrificed to idols? In other words, because he has a weak conscience, but he sees you doing it, he's going to go, well, I guess it's all right. He's doing it. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It's your fault. You're the one that's sinning because you put a stumbling block in front of your brother. Therefore, 
If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again that I might not cause my brother to stumble. Paul uses himself as the example and says, I have this freedom. I am convinced that nothing is unclean. I can eat anything I want. But if what I eat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat that again. I'm not going to do that in front of a brother and his weaker conscience, very much like what Leon just asked about. Am I not free? Start in verse 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is defending his absolute freedom and yet he retains the freedom to say no if it would offend a weaker brother. You get all that? So that is Paul's attitude. That's the attitude he's writing from. You can go back to the book of Romans. We're nearly done. That is his approach. That is his attitude toward the weaker brother. The weaker brother can't lift himself up to your level of strength. Therefore, you in your strength have to step down to where the weaker brother is because if you offend the conscience of the weaker brother, it's your fault. You have sinned not only against him, but you've sinned against Christ himself who bought you and him. We are in chapter 14 of the book of Romans again. I'm going to start at verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, which is, yeah, this is a good thing. This is a steak. This is, this is pork. This is seafood. This, this is something I feel perfectly at ease eating, but don't let what for you is a good thing end up spoken evil of. If you're using your freedom, which is a good thing, in order to hurt and destroy other people, that's a bad thing. So then why would you let your freedom and your love of Christ and your realization that nothing is unclean in and of itself, why would you let that be evil spoken of by using it to hurt other people? Verse 17, the kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking. It's in righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Ultimately, those spiritual realities, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, are much more important than your eating and drinking. So then you can curb your eating and drinking because that's not what's important. That's not the high priority stuff. Eating and drinking or not eating and drinking, keeping holy days, not keeping holy days. Ultimately, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is about our joy in the Holy Spirit and about righteousness and about peace among brethren and peace between us and God. Therefore, we ought to be perfectly willing to walk in such a way and behave in such a way that we are actually looking out for one another because that's exactly what he's talking about. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in our unity together as the body of Christ collectively, the way that we look out for each other, that's the kingdom of God. For he who is in this way, 
which means you're walking in righteousness, you're walking in peace, you're walking in the joy of the Holy Spirit. He who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and is approved of men. That's pretty much what we're all gunning for, isn't it? We're all looking to be approved of by God and approved of by men. We want to be acceptable to God in the way that we walk. We want, when we have to go give account for ourselves, we want for there to still be some gold and silver left over after the fire. We want the rewards. We want to be pleasing to our master. We want to be approved and acceptable to God. And we want to be approved by men. That's such an interesting phrase because Paul is saying, if you act in such a way that you care about the benefit of other people, then other people are going to care about you. You're going to be approved of by men by the way you walk. If the way you walk, if the way you behave is constantly me first, look at me, I have freedom, you ought to be more like me, you ought to behave yourself according to what I decide is right, eventually that's just going to put people off. But if you're acceptable to God and approved by men, that's because you are walking in righteousness and in peace with God and man and in joy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, so then, having said all that, having said everything, if you walk out and you remember nothing else, so then let us pursue the things which make for peace and that are for the building up of one another. Same thing he said in Philippians, same thing he said in First, Second Corinthians, let us pursue those things, actively pursue the things Look for, act on those things that bring peace between you and your brethren and that build them up. Come alongside them, lift them up, encourage them. And you know what that will do? That will bring them to greater levels of the freedom that you're already walking in. Does that make sense? Next week we will start at do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. I think you know that by now. Don't tear down the work of God. God is busy saving people. Don't tear that down by offending people's conscience just for food, just so that you can eat what you want to eat. If you have freedom, have it to yourself. Be thankful to God that he has given you that knowledge. If he has given you the understanding that nothing is unclean, then thank God when you eat it. But don't use that freedom, don't use that knowledge as an opportunity to hurt other people or destroy other people's conscience. They walk before God according to their conscience. You ought to come alongside, you ought to live with them in joy and peace, and you ought to build them up and encourage them, and maybe one day they will reach the level of freedom and knowledge that you have, and that's the end goal. Got it? Got it. Questions? No? Okay. Comments? Now it's your turn. (laughs) When Luann and I were married, we were attending Baptist Bible College of Pennsylvania. And they had a very strict list of things that students were not allowed to do. Which, as I was growing in my understanding of the doctrines of grace and the principle of Christian liberty, I realized were man-made rules. And uh, so, on our honeymoon, among other things we did, 
was we went to see Star Wars and realized how Buddhist it was and so on. But when we got home from our honeymoon, we went to visit my folks and my sister was there and Star Wars was like a new era in special effects and so on. So I was pretty excited about it and I encouraged my little sister to go see Star Wars. My little sister still believed that you shall not go to movies was the 11th commandment. Had she gone to see that movie, she would have violated her conscience and I would have been the one who caused her to do so. Mm -hmm. I've never forgotten that because I, as we left, I felt guilty for violating her conscience in the sense that I said, you need to go do this. Just because we were free to do it didn't mm -hmm. mean she was. Now, since then, the wife of the president of the university talks about movies that they've gone to see. So <laughs> obviously, the standard has changed at the yeah. college that we attended. So do you all understand what Steve just did? What Steve just did is he took all the stuff that we looked at this morning that had to do specifically with food and holy days, and he put it into a modern application. He put it into a life experience. And I hope you walk away with that understanding that in Paul's day, the big issues were food and holy days because of the Jew-Gentile distinction. But I think we can take the principles that we've seen the last couple of weeks and apply them in our lives in so many different circumstances and in so many different ways. We're still called to look out for one another. We're still called not to offend the conscience of a weaker brother. We're still called to come alongside and be patient with somebody who doesn't have the freedom that we have and that reality kind of works its way into so many episodes or events in our life so we can apply what we learned today from 2,000 years ago into a modern context. And that's exactly what Steve just did for you, gave you a good example of that. Well, and it's not that hard as a Christian to not just to say no, but to change yourself for the weaker brother. It is such a small sign of love that is so easy to do as a Christian. We just put ourselves aside and say, okay, okay, what is right. what? And they were Christian brothers. And it's Christian appropriate self-sacrifice. Right, and, it was, and, it, yeah. and it's so simple and loving. And yeah. I didn't really understand what that means. I was very young, so. It's very and it's what we're called to. Yeah. It's what we're directed to. Right. Yeah. Yes, sir? I think that's probably all very true when you're talking about um, the weaker brother and so forth, but there are still hundreds and thousands of moral issues that are not addressed directly in the Bible. And we are called on to make difficult moral decisions. And, you know, it's comforting to think, you know, it's a mighty thick book. Must be an answer in there somewhere. But there have been, you know, 2,000 years of disagreement about how to apply yeah, what Paul is talking about, though, remember, is between brethren, blood-bought people, and he's talking about the way in which they 
in their conscience how they worship God, how they walk before God. And so some of those moral issues don't fall into that category. And you were preaching, I know, you were preaching about this passage, Mm -hmm. about what Paul was saying about uh, relations between Christians. Mm -hmm. I I get that. that, It was well done. Oh, well, thanks. But there are a lot of... I got a compliment at the end. But there are a lot of issues, you know, that are difficult to resolve. There are. I think that's why Paul said, the foundation is laid... Now, be careful how you build on the foundation. Some people are going to build on that foundation in a way that's going to be burned away. Yeah. He's obviously talking about those kinds of issues. Because uh, what an incredibly big book it would be if it had an answer to absolutely every moral dilemma that mankind has ever faced. So instead, what you get is the big principles, yeah. and then you walk according to those principles when you're deciding the moral issues. Anything else? Should we apply this to, um, like, I know, so you, I know you're talking in the context of the church, but I was wondering if we should apply this to, like, even with, outside of the church. So, for example, take the Jewish friends instance. Like, say you have, like, Jewish friends who aren't Christians, but, like, um, I don't know, like, if you were to go out to eat with them, should you still be sensitive to, like, cultural and ethnic? I would be just because we're told to love even our enemies. Mm-hmm. And walking in love would be to be aware of their conscience. Or I, guess, I guess it's like how Paul, like, when he went... Or yeah, when he said, I can be all things to all men. Yeah. To those who are under the law, I'm like one under the law. To those who aren't under the law, I'm like one not under the law. I'm all things to all men that I may win the more to Christ. Right. And so, yeah, I would say... If you have the freedom of conscience to go out to eat with Jewish friends, then go, but don't offend them. Don't don't demonstrate, I would say, here's the big principle thing, kind of like we were talking about with George, because you're asking kind of a moral question. The big principle is, why would you represent Christ in a way that makes them feel worse about their traditions or their background or their belief so that they're going to end up saying, well, I don't want anything to do with that. If that's what Christ is like, forget that. I guess I'm just wondering if we can apply, like contextually, if we can apply this verse to that. or is it If you can comply it contextually. Yeah. this passage <clears throat> as like non-Christians as well, or if we should take it different. I would only say that Paul in this case is talking about unity within the church right. because of the fellowship of the spirit and everything else. I would say that the principles we've learned about how we deal with each other within the church can teach us to be a good person out there in the world because we're going to be then approved of by God and approved of by men because we're walking according to our convictions and to the foundation that's laid. So I would say, yeah. In other words, what I'm saying is you don't get to be a Christian in church when you're around the other Christians and then go out among the world and just live like hell. You don't have that option. If you're a Christian, you're one in every aspect of life, which is kind of where we started. If we live, we live to the Lord. Make sense? Yeah. Yes, sir? Like you said earlier, as much as possible, live at peace with all men. That's kind of all That's right. Yeah, Paul says, as much as possible, as much as lays within you, live at peace with all men. That's Micah for the assist on that one. So that's good.
Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.